Hi, everyone, and welcome back to another episode of The Negotiation. Today, I'm speaking with Milo Chow, formerly with TBWA China for over four years and an expert in residence at China Accelerator. He is now the co-founder of Chow and Cao, a Shanghai-based strategic advisory firm established to help foreign brands grow locally and Chinese brands grow internationally. Milo has over two decades of marketing and branding experience, much of it in China, which inevitably led to this becoming our longest episode to date. We thoroughly discussed many aspects of China market entry, covering the difficulties of marketing in the auto industry to why the infant milk industry was surprisingly easier. We also talked about whether Chinese consumers care about a brand's CSR activities and social impact status, the importance of maintaining or even investing further in customer service resources for China, and why brands need to invest in revamping their customer profiles from the beginning and relearning customer empathy for the Chinese market. Milo, what's the one brand that people and businesses need to know about in China and why? So there's one Chinese brand that I find really interesting. It's called 999. It's a cold medicine. Hmm. And what I find interesting in what they're doing is they are trying to appeal to millennials coming across in their communications, not as a cold medicine brand, but as a fashion brand. So they're really breaking out of the mold of what a cold medicine brand should be doing. Home to over 4 billion people, the Asia-Pacific region boasts one of the most powerful consumer markets on the planet. Not only is it home to half the world's under 30 population, but it's also home to more than half the world's internet users. It's a market no globally-minded brand should ignore, but entering markets like China is no easy task. Just ask the likes of Microsoft, Google, Uber, and Facebook. Times are changing, and with the right partners, doors are slowly opening as more and more companies find success expanding into the markets of the Middle Kingdom. I myself spent eight years in China, mostly as a venture capitalist, helping early-stage tech companies enter the Asia-Pacific market successfully. This show is dedicated to uncovering and examining successful China entry and growth strategies by interviewing the people behind those success stories. My name is Todd Embley, and welcome to The Negotiation, brought to you by WPIC Marketing and Technologies. Milo, welcome to the show. Thanks for coming on. Thanks, Todd. Thanks for inviting me. So tell us a little bit about how you ended up in China. What's your China story? Um, my dad's Chinese. My mother's Irish. Uh, when I was growing up in New York, my dad never spoke Chinese, but uh, his third wife was Chinese, and uh, they spoke Chinese all the time. And so they would always be you know, speaking in Chinese, and it was always, you know, I was always curious as to what was going on and what they were saying. So I started studying Chinese in college. And, uh, you know, I, I visited China in 1992 and doing the summer program. And I just I fell in love with it. It was just it was a, it was just a, a fascinating place. Okay, so you've got a long, um, well, you've got a really, really nice career in doing advertising and branding, uh, and a lot of it is in China. So kind of catch us up to how you got into advertising and branding, where your background is in that, and then how you ended up doing it in China. Well, I uh, was a lost youth, for sure, um, when I was younger. Uh, when, after I graduated from university, I went to Taiwan to study Chinese. Uh, and then uh, after two years, I went to the, uh, the Johns Hopkins uh, Nanjing program uh, in, um, in Nanjing. Uh, and uh, for, there, for a year, I was there. 
Uh, and then, you know, I had originally wanted to go into uh, either uh, journalism or the Foreign Service. You know, I, I did an internship with Reuters, uh, and that uh, was incredible. But, uh, you know, at the end, uh, I didn't get that job. Uh, and I was just kind of searching for something, you know, what is what is what should I be doing next um, after graduation? And um someone mentioned to me this idea of, of advertising. I had never, ever thought about it prior to that, right? I mean, I was a political science major. I, I, I concentrated in international relations and East Asian studies. Never once thought about advertising. Mm -hmm. I didn't even watch advertising. <laughs> uh, uh, and then, you know, then I went, uh, I went to Hong Kong for the handover, right? This is uh, in uh, 1997. Yeah. The handover from uh, you know uh, uh, China back to I mean the Hong Kong back to China, mm -hmm. and uh, you know while I was there I said okay so I'll just start you know uh, looking for a job in advertising so I got my resume together and I just you know threw it into every uh, every uh, I guess mailbox I could at different advertising agencies, and then finally I was. Um, you know, I, I was at a um, in an elevator bank, and I was talking to a guy, and I said, uh, "Yeah, I just put my my uh, yellow envelope in, and you know, I just uh, was looking for a job in advertising." And I got on the elevator with the guy, and I just kept talking to him, telling him why I was interested in advertising. Uh, he gives me his card, and uh, he says, "Call me on Monday. I'll introduce you to uh, the CEO, and uh, we'll see what we can do." Uh, and so. Uh, you know, next week I got a job and at an agency called Gray. Mm. And uh, I specifically said I wanted to work in China. I don't want to be in Hong Kong. I want to be in Beijing. Um, and what year was uh, this? Just because this was in 1997. Oh, same and, year. Okay. Uh, yeah, it's 1997. And then uh, I, I did some time in Hong Kong and then shipped myself up to uh, to Beijing to, to start my, my career in advertising, I guess. Uh, there I worked on, uh, you know, pedigree dog food. I worked on Holiday Inn. I launched Starbucks in China. And so it was it was an exciting time. Very different from where it, where it is today. But it was uh, it was sort of uh, the really early days of advertising uh, in uh, in China. Okay. So you have to talk to us about that because I, I think that is a really, really cool. You've been there 22 years now. What was well, advertising? Well, no, I mean, I, I've, left, I've left China, right? I, I, I spent three years there. Oh. Um, yeah, so 97, 98, 99. Okay. Yeah, so I, I was almost there. I was there for about almost three years. Uh, and then I went back to uh, the United States and took up, you know, a job in advertising in New York um, at the same agency at Gray. Oh, okay. So, okay. So yeah. then you got, you you have another world of experience over there. And what was it? What was yeah, your role? I, went, I mean, I went, in Beijing, you were doing foreign brands. And you talked about pedigree dog foods and, and whatnot. In New York, was what was the yeah. role there? I was working on um, uh, Dow Corning at the time. I think it was Dow Corning. Now they're it's the chemical company, mm. and I was doing uh, work there. And we were uh, doing some work with China, actually. So uh, China, there was a, a company called Free Gun which is a, a very famous Chinese brand, very kind of classical Chinese brand. Uh, it's a clothing brand, like more kind of like Hanes, for instance, you know, the, the, the underwear brand. Mm -hmm. And so we were, 
um, Dow Corning was was producing sort of some chemical for this brand that would make the, the product a lot more um, breathable or mm-hmm. a lot more kind of easy mm-hmm. to clean. Okay, so you spend some time in advertising in Beijing, then you go back to New York, you're doing more advertising in, in New York. You know, what happened then? I mean, at some point you must have gone through some sort of life events that ended up leading you back to back to China. What happened? You know, I went back to New York. I was an account executive in, in the New York office of uh, Gray, and uh, I realized that wasn't really my thing. So I decided, you know, let me go to grad school, get a master's degree in marketing communications, and then make a shift to planning, right, strategic planning. Ah. Uh, so I, I applied. I got accepted. Um, I went to Northwestern, uh, did my, you know, got my degree, master's degree, and then um, I moved down to Dallas, Texas, where, you know, um, there was a, a very uh, famous planner who was starting up the planning department of a, a very uh, data-driven company. I joined her, worked there for three years. During that time, I got married, and my wife was, you know, not really excited about uh you know, Dallas. And so uh, an opportunity came up in Singapore. We moved to Singapore. I I took a job with DDB, which is um, a fantastic advertising agency. Um, And I worked, uh, worked there for four years. And I moved to Hong Kong, take up the the role of head of planning for Hong Kong. And I worked a lot with uh, Guangzhou with clients there Um, a lot with, uh, you know, Wrigley, uh, the Wrigley business, mostly. And then um, uh, after three years, uh, I moved up to Beijing uh, to work on Volkswagen um, and uh, wow. did two years there. What year, was the, then, the, uh, what year was the move to Beijing? The move to Beijing was in 2010. Okay. Uh, it's actually the exact same time that I had our, our daughter who's now eight. Okay. Um, and, and, you know, interestingly, the company had uh, offered to pay for an MBA. And so I was, I was already started to take the MBA at the, the Kellogg School of Management uh, and the Hong Kong uh, Science and Technology University uh, in Hong Kong. And uh, they said, we'll gladly pay for that, um, but we need you to move to Beijing. So I moved to Beijing. Uh, and, uh, you know, with my newborn baby. And uh, then two years later, after working on Volkswagen, I moved down to to uh, to Shanghai, where I've been since then. So I've been I've been in Shanghai now for, you know, seven years. Right. And at some point you left. Uh, I may have missed. When did you join TBWA? I joined TBWA probably in 2013. Okay. And worked there for about four years. Yeah. Okay. So would it be fair to say that a lot of your work has been helping foreign brands uh, with their strategy and planning and marketing in China? Absolutely. I mean, that's prim- primarily. I, we've, you know, I've worked on mostly foreign brands, although I have done some work for, for local brands as well. Um, I mean, I've done some interesting work with, with local brands. Uh, I think they can be uh, somewhat challenging. I've worked with uh, uh, Qingdao Pijo, Qingdao mm-hmm. Beer. Uh, mm-hmm. I've worked a little bit on Huawei, done a little bit on, on ZTE, which is a state-owned enterprise, which does, you know, 
um, mostly electronics and technology mm-hmm. products and, um, you know, some other smaller brands. I've worked with some cold medicine brands and um, other things like that. So, yeah, I've got I've got my fair share or, or a good amount of uh, experience with local brands, but primarily, you know, international brands. What was what was a, a really, really tough industry uh, that you remember trying to work on? Well, you know, auto is a very, very tough industry. Actually, um, I've I've worked, uh, I've done work with Volkswagen. I've done work with Nissan. I've done work with um, Ford and Lincoln, um, and uh, it is an incredibly challenging uh, world. Uh, because, uh, you know, it's such a competitive market and there are so many conventions that, you know, everyone sort of has, uh, you know, these kind of blinders on thinking that this is how you do advertising, this is how you do advertising. Mm-hmm. And so when you look at the, the market, you can see that, you know, uh, auto advertising is essentially the same. I mean, you know, there, there occasionally is some, some slight variations, but because of perhaps because of the, you know, the amount of money that is invested in these, uh, the marketing, I mean, they put in serious money into, into marketing and, and the auto industry. Um, you know, they don't take risks very often. Uh, so occasionally they do, and 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 you know for with mixed results. But I think it's uh, one of the most uh, challenging challenging markets. What is and it's not just about marketing, right? Because I think there's there's a lot of you know there's there's uh, prices pricing issues you have to wrestle with. There's mm-hmm. distribution issues that are hugely impactful. So yeah, what did you find that uh, was easier than you thought it would be for an industry or for a particular campaign that you might have worked on where did you find that uh you know oh surprisingly this is actually um a good spot to be doing this and this is actually going better than i thought it might well you know i actually interestingly found uh working on infant milk formula to be quite um uh engaging and interesting uh, I, I don't know if that's the question you're asking, but I'll, I'll pursue it a little bit. I, I found um, working with infant milk formula to be really interesting because when you are thinking about that industry, you're actually thinking about the future of China. Right now, what does that mean? Right, because when you when you uh, when you uh, are thinking about infant milk formula, you're you're actually thinking about the relationship between mother and child. You're thinking about um, what that mother wants for that child. What are the expectations that that mother has for the child? What are the things and the pressures around her um, uh, that are kind of forcing her to kind of move in one direction or another, right? For, I'll give you just some for instances, right? You know, there, you know, there was almost a, uh, there was a year where there was almost a kind of an arms race for DHA, right, which is this kind of this chemical that is, intent, is supposed to make your child much smarter, right? So, you know, one company would say we have 500, you know, you know, amount of of DHA, and another one say we have thousands, uh, you know, of DHA, and we have ten thousands of DHA, right? And so it was just this kind of arms race of like who has more DHA, and so you know, it's really about 
you know, finding ways to to really be creative in in the way you kind of market or position yourself in this category, you know. And there was one brand came along, uh, Aluma, which is a super premium brand of of milk and milk formula, and they just kind of broke out of that and they said, you know what, this it's not about you know, the, the formula, although it's about the formula, but um, they said it's about, you know, releasing your child, giving your child freedom, allowing them to explore their creative side and see, and that, you know, message along with their formula, uh, you know, really played well with mothers who are kind of looking for a much more kind of progressive approach to motherhood, looking for an alternative to the sort of, you know, uh, rote, you know, memorization, the the uh, whole idea that, you know, kids are just being, you know, stuffed with information and, and they're not free. And so we're really playing into this kind of aspiration of what motherhood should be and, and what the future of China's, um, I guess, competitive nature will be, all from infant milk formula. What were some of the biggest challenges you faced in trying to convert them into having the right philosophy or approach to what they were about to engage in? So I think the interesting thing about, you know, working with, and I've worked with a lot of foreign companies trying to get into China, big and small, right? And, you know, American, Australian, European. I think one of the interesting things is that most foreign brands will come into China with this, you know, belief that they need to be super Chinese, Mm. right? They need Mm. to be almost more Chinese than Chinese. In some ways, they are willing to uh, sacrifice their own core for, you know, trying to be relevant to a Chinese consumer. And I think what's most important for Chinese, for foreign brands coming into China is to think about, okay, so what is the essence of what I'm all about? You know, what has enabled me to succeed in my own country? Right. What, so what is the universal that, you know, I can kind of deploy in China that I could deploy anywhere? Right. Yes, it's a foreign country. Yes, it's kind of this sort of, you know, big land that they don't understand. But that does not mean that you just forego the strengths that you had in other countries. Right. Uh, I think the ones that are most successful are the ones who are able to say, okay, this is the essence of what I am. This is what it, my, my core strength is. And now I just need to find a way to make that relevant uh, to the Chinese uh, consumer. And I think that's, that's, that's really where the, the, you know, I think the, the rubber hits the road or, or really where the thinking needs to happen, right? Which is, mm-hmm. you know, this is who I am. Now, how can I make that relevant to uh, the Chinese consumer, and how can I make it my, myself different from all the competitors that been, that are in the marketplace today? Right? Um, and you know, in the past, it used to just be about you know being relevant to or or being distinct from from you know other foreign brands. But today, um, increasingly, you have to distinguish yourself also from from the the local brands who are you know becoming much more competitive um who are you know uh responding much more rapidly to 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 shifts um probably understand consumers at a much more kind of um almost intuitive level than than foreigners you know i remember reading an article once uh in chinese uh about uh you know three very famous uh, Chinese uh, CEOs who met uh, and talked about 
uh, working, you know, or competing against foreign brands. And they said, ultimately, you know, the problem with foreign brands is that they have to, you know, call their boss back in, in you know, in Dusseldorf or call their boss back in New York or, or London to try to, you know, work things out. And it takes too long for us. These are our local CEOs. We can turn on a dime, right? We can we can make shifts, you know, in in seconds and make massive shifts in seconds, right? And so, you know, I think that's that's sort of um, you know a, an issue that uh, foreign brands have to wrestle with. Meaning to say that, you know, it's not just foreign competition that they're wrestling with; it's local competition as well. I was going to say, and that's a great segue. I think that we know now that the cachet of being a foreign brand. Uh, isn't paying the dividends that it used to when you enter a market like China. How has the competitive landscape changed as far as not not just the consumer, but as far as the competition? How are how have you seen uh, recently in the last five years, you know, till now? How have you seen the the competitive nature of of companies really up their game or their sophistication in, in what they're doing and how they're how they're reaching out and and creating a relationship with customers? I think the the um, I think every brand is struggling, right? I don't think there's there's any brand that is just breezing through marketing, breezing through, <laughs> you know, okay. making money. I yeah. think, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, but I, I think certain brands have advantages because they have kind of an intuitive sense of of what needs to happen. They have an intuitive kind of connection with, you know, the consumer base, right? Um, but obviously, I think uh, most important is is, you know, understanding all the platforms that are, are really popular and understanding how to use them and creating the right content that kind of they can push out to consumers um, and, you know, trying things, right? And I, I think there's, there's you know, certain brands are a little bit more conservative and certain brands are actually much more risk-taking. And I think probably the younger brands are, are much more open to taking risks. And I think foreign brands uh, need to kind of, you know, open up, uh, relax a little bit and sort of really just kind of take off the gloves, right? I mean, take off the gloves and get into the ring and start pounding, right? I think, you know, you, you have to, this is, it's, it's a war zone. I mean, it's, it's a, it's a huge battle and you have to be fighting like, you know, it's not like, you know, the British, you know, redcoats, you know, just marching down the road. Mm -hmm. I mean, you have to, you have to go gorilla. And I think the Chinese brands are doing a lot better job at going gorilla. And I think uh, foreign brands need to just kind of take off their jackets and say, let's try to find ways where we can just kind of do it, um, you know, in a way that we can really reach consumers. And, and you know, in some ways it may be off brand, uh, but we need to do what works. And I think that's sort of, uh, you know, something to, to be said about uh, Chinese brands and, and Chinese, Chinese consumers or Chinese people in general. I think they are less, uh, less inhibited by kind of these constraints uh, of, you know, what our brand is and what our brand should and should not do. I think there's just a desire to sort of do what needs to be done to, you know, win. Is the Chinese consumer measuring the impact globally that a company is having, say, on the earth, on the environment? Are they paying more attention to CSR pillars of a company or what they stand for? And is that impacting the loyalty a customer has to a brand? 
Yeah, you know, that's it's an interesting question because I think there are definitely research studies that are coming out that speak to, you know, a, a greater consciousness uh, and that's openness a good way of putting it. Yeah. and re- requirement for, you know, a, a greener product, uh, healthier product. Uh, again, I, I would separate those two things, right? Yeah, Where between wellness sure. and, and or even health and, and like global impact, right? Because right? global impact is very macro. It's very kind of other mm-hmm. as opposed to wellness and health, which is about me. It's going to impact me. Mm-hmm. And so I think Chinese consumers are definitely definitely concerned about the impact products have on them individually and on their you know friends and their family now the question is are they that concerned about the impact these products are having on you know uh, you know carbon carbon emissions or right. or, or pollution I, I would say uh, yes they are within you know the confines of their community like for instance, whether it be Beijing or Shanghai or Guangzhou or some of these larger cities, probably even some of the smaller cities, they do care about pollution because it's so visible, right? Um, so they, they do care. And I think that's, that, that does uh, have an impact on their, their thinking about their purchasing. But are we at the stage where you know Chinese consumers are like, well, I only buy products that are you know, you know, are not animal tested. I only buy products that I don't think we're there yet. No, I don't think we're no, there yeah. at that level of you know concern or care because I don't think they do think about those things, right? I don't think they think about the other. I think they think about the me. And when, when when it comes to you know pollution, when it comes to any of these things that you know animal testing or kind of you know certain chemicals, you know that that is um, probably there at the very kind of highest levels at, at, at you know within the first tier cities amongst you know uh, Chinese who have traveled overseas, who've lived overseas, who've studied overseas. And I think it's amongst those people that that, that that level of consciousness is coming. And of course, I think there are some kind of native born concerns about that. I think particularly with people who are, you know, just very sensitive, very intellectual, very kind of aware of these issues. You know, I, I you know, people maybe who may be even spiritual, I think those types of people are much more kind of switched on and concerned about, mm-hmm. you know, um, these issues. Let me ask another question, and I apologize if it gets a little complicated or confusing because there's kind of four points in here. But I want to ask how sophisticated is the Chinese consumer when it comes to a brand being authentic? And how has that changed or grown up over the last five years? And how much do foreign brands need to pay attention to being authentic when they enter China? And how much of a problem is it for them to be able to do that? Good question. I think that, you know, the interesting thing about, you know, authenticity, I think you need to define what that means. But I think um, I think the conversation about authenticity starts with products that are real or fake, Hmm. right? Um, That are that are fake. And then you can break it down to are they safe or are they unsafe? Are they dangerous? Are they toxic? Right. Um, So, you know, 
historically, or at least in the last, you know, 10 or so years, there's there's been a, a lot of cases where people have become very sick or even died because things were fake, right? Now, we're talking about authenticity on a product level. So I, I think that is, obviously, people care about that. And again, it's about the me, right? It's about the, you know, um, they think about authenticity from that perspective. Now, the, another question is like, on a branding level of you know, authenticity, do they care about brands that are kind of, you know, are all about truth, are all about kind of, you know, mm. you know, not being, you know, just bullshitting them? I think, uh, I think the younger consumer has a bullshit radar, right? Mm -hmm. And I think they are, you know, I think there's. A, a move towards or away from, I'll, I'll say for instance, within the auto industry, right? There is definitely a move away from this kind of highfalutin language that they typically use in Chinese, right? Where it feels like it's language that is coming from the emperor. It feels like language right. that is, you know, from, from ancient literature, it's poetic, right? And, and you know, it's interesting because we've done focus groups where we've asked people, what do you think of this language? She says, well, I don't understand it, but it sounds really sophisticated, Regal. right? Yeah. So it, yeah, so I mean, but I think there's, there is definitely a move towards, there's a, a, a phrase in, in, in um, Chinese, it's called jie di qi. And jie di qi just means very kind of down to earth, right? Mm -hmm. And I think there is definitely a move for marketers to, and, and consumers to want things to be very grounded, right? Uh, and they're, they're kind of getting tired of things that are, you know, just kind of up in the air, making these big promises and, you know, just, you know, don't bullshit me, let's just be real, right? And you talk about, you know, authenticity, it's about being real. And I think, you know, you also need to get real when you go down to, you know, the lower tiers because uh, they're less sophisticated, I suppose you could say, I mean, arguably less sophisticated um, and they're much more direct, right? So th this is kind of a third aspect of authenticity, which is about just being very direct, not, not trying to kind of, you know, beat around the bush or, or, you know, try to be kind of clever or try to be poetic. It's just about being very direct, being very kind of uh, specific to their uh, environment and, and really speaking to a truth about them, right? So when you mm -hmm. talk, when you communicate, it sounds to them that you truly understand them, yeah. right? And again, I think that's part of a, an element of authenticity. So to answer your question as simply as uh, it's, it's a, the answer is yes. There is definitely uh, a demand for uh, authenticity. But again, authenticity is, needs to be broken down and it can be complex. Yeah. So you do need to, as a brand, you need to think about you know, what does authenticity mean to me or for me uh, across my marketing levers? Is there a unique definition of what it means for a brand to come into China and be authentic, unique to China? Well, I think I think there's, um, you know, as I said, I think there's some complexity towards, you know, the idea of authenticity. That's right. Like you can have a brand that comes into China 
and is exactly like they were in Canada, exactly like they were in France, right? And they haven't made any adjustments to to the local market. You could argue that that's authentic. Yes, it's authentic, but it's not necessarily relevant, right? I think there is there is a um, what you need to do is you need to be true to who you are, but at the same time, you need to be relevant to the people you're talking to, right? Um, so. If I was authentic, I, well, maybe I, all I do is have my menus in French, right? I mean, that's authentic, mm-hmm. but mm-hmm. it puts people off because it's <laughs> it's in French and I don't understand it, and it comes across as pretentious, right, right. Uh, and disrespectful. And I think that idea of respecting the Chinese is very important, right? And, you know, you look at some of the more successful brands. If you look at, you know, uh, for instance, you look at Kentucky Fried Chicken, which has a, you know, a wonderful case study on on localization. If you go into a KFC here in China, for instance, you will see that, you know, it almost, the the menu looks almost uh, unrecognizable from what's uh, in the States, for instance, right? Right. Because they have localized. Mm -hmm. They... And I think I think fast food or, or just food in general is very specific to China in the sense that you need to cater to their palate, right? Mm-hmm. I think fashion is a little bit more flexible, but if you're mm-hmm. talking about you know food, I think Chinese have their their palate and they kind of if you're talking about something they go to on a daily basis, you need to kind of speak to their their everyday palate as opposed to you know their exploratory palate right the one where they they may venture into a French restaurant they may venture into a you know a you know a Romanian restaurant, although I don't know if there's any Romanian restaurants, but my point is that you know there's there's a time to be kind of you know, adventurous, and there's a time to be every day. And if you're every day, you need to find a way to kind of uh, cater to the local palate and the local necessities. Mm-hmm. So I think you can kind of um, uh, you kind of need to juggle that, as opposed to just coming in not adjusted whatsoever. Right. So after 22 years of advertising uh, touch points with China, what have the what are the biggest changes you've seen? Let me take you back to my starting point in China, so I can okay. you can get a, a sense of you know where advertising was and where advertising is today. One of my first uh, clients was Pedigree Pedigree Dog Food, mm-hmm. um, and one of the first things we had to do um, was uh, redesign their their packaging. Uh, we weren't we weren't doing any advertising at the time because you know one you weren't allowed to um, uh, put anything on television where you're you're um, selling dog food it's it's offensive to a population remember back in 1997 you still had a large percentage of the Chinese population living in abject poverty mm-hmm. right and so for you to kind of advertise that stuff uh, would be you know incredibly offensive also you know the type of dogs people had were, were quite limited and, and the um, there was a lot of restrictions. But one of the things that we had to do, and I think it was it's just it's just a fascinating story for me to tell, which is we had to redesign the packaging. Why? Because people thought that what we were selling was dog meat. Right? Uh, so it was it was it was it was dog food. I get it. <laughs> but a lot of people would come into the stores and they were thinking, oh, this is dog meat. They didn't buy it because no one wants to eat dog meat. 
Um, but they just like, well, that's weird. Or, you know, I'm not interested in that. So uh, I think the level of understanding at that time about products uh, was just very, very low, right? 1997. Mm-hmm. I mean, we we're still, uh, you know, at a very, very early stage of Chinese development. But today, I mean, the level of sophistication of Chinese consumers, the level of sophistication of the way in which we market is just incredible. Leaps and bounds beyond what was back in 1997. And in fact, in some ways, I would say that, you know, it's more sophisticated than than what you see in the United States. And I think, you know, consumers here in China are incredibly, um, you know, uh, I guess digital savvy. I mean, I I guess I, I don't know what that really means, but I think, you know, they have so many options, so many choices uh, that they're, you know, somewhat um, snobbish about, you know, the, the products they they buy into, you know, and it is definitely a consumer's market, right, in the sense that, you know, brands have to really fight for their wallets, fight for their, their yen, right? I mean, they have to offer new services, offer new products or an app add-ons and promotions and all of these things to drive uh, a connection to to consumers. Part of what you were saying made me think that customer service for a brand, how important is is customer service important in China? How important is it? Has it always been important? Has it grown up in importance? Is it a thing now and is it an important thing for foreign brands going into China to bring with them when they go? I think that's that's an understatement. I think the importance of customer service is just customer service is incredibly important, right? And I would say that Chinese local companies are incredibly good at customer service. They will mm-hmm. bend over backwards for their uh, their customers, right? And they offer, you know. Uh, services that are just delightful, right? I mean, you know, surprising and delightful. I mean, these are these are the things that we talk about are kind of qualities of great services when you 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 surprise and delight people. And I think mm-hmm. the Chinese have have really um, become incredibly good at this. And and I, I, the reason why is because one uh, Chinese uh, Chinese consumers have no issue with complaining. Mm. They are the great complainers, right? Mm-hmm. They will, you know, uh, if you do not give them exactly what they expected, they will complain. Mm-hmm. Um, if uh, if something's broken, they will complain. And and here's the thing: because of Taobao, because of social media, they are the the brand owners are fearful that uh, there will be retribution, that where there will be you know, a consumer who will write a bad review or the consumer who will give them, uh, you know, a, a one star or no stars. Um, it, it's incredibly important for, uh, you know, brands to get good reviews. If they don't get good reviews, it can destroy their business, right? Uh, I, I've heard stories of, of where brands have gone back to a consumer and pleaded with them to change their review because they know if they have a bad review, they would, they're going to get get killed because mm-hmm. Chinese people, uh, at least a, a lot of Chinese consumers, 
you know, care about reviews, right? They follow where the, the majority are going. And I'm not saying that they're, you know, sheep just following the herd. Right, right. But you know, it's, it's really the wisdom of crowds, right? Which is that if a lot of people are, are, are sort of going there, buying that, then it must be good. And, you know, and word of mouth, as you know, is hugely important, right? I mean, word of mouth can either make or break a brand. Uh, and it has in the past, uh, you know, done incredible things for brands. And, and again, service is also a competitive advantage, right? It is something that, um, you know, consumers can um, or, or brands can uh, use to differentiate them from other other competitors. There's obviously the, the, the famous case of, of Heidi Lau, which is, you know, a hot pot brand. In fact, the hot pot it's no better than, than other hot pots, you know, where you kind of, you have the spicy kind of cauldron of, of juices and you add meat and vegetables and things like that into it. And, but they, they've done an incredible job with their service. They've turned service into part of what they, their, their product offering, right? Mm -hmm. You know, if you're, you're waiting online. And in fact, I, I think, you know, a lot of these innovations come from frustrations, right? Most innovations, sure. most in inventions come from frustrations. And I think one of the problems is that <clears throat> when people are waiting online, if they're frustrated, if they're not distracted, they're going to get upset, right? Mm -hmm. And they're going to start, you know, moaning about, you know, how long we have to wait. You know, we have to wait for another half hour. You have to wait. So what, what Hiding Out did is they created nail services, right? You can get your nails done while you wait, or you can play backgammon, or you can, you know, eat this, you know, eat this watermelon, or you can get a back rub, right? So I think these services came from frustrations or fear of frustration. So they kind of thought, okay, how are we going to do this? How are we going to solve this problem? And so I think Chinese have done an incredible job of offering uh, these services. And, and it's a little things, right? Even like when you go on Taobao, for instance, uh, you know, you order some product and, uh, you know, like um, I'll order a, a shelf, right? I'll order a shelf from, uh, you know, some vendor on Taobao and uh, it'll come in its parts, but they'll, they'll also provide you with a hammer and, and uh, you know, a screwdriver. Why? Because they know Chinese consumers don't actually have these things in their home. They don't have a toolbox. The average Chinese consumer does not have a toolbox. And so they include the equipment. And that's, that's you know, what that means is the brand understands what Chinese people want, mm -hmm. right? Understands what they have, what they don't have. And that's, it, it's not something, uh, you, know, uh, you know, if an American brand, let's say, low comes in, right? Mm -hmm. And, you know, they, they sell, a, you know, a chair or, a, you know, a desk or something like that. Yeah. They're not going to in include a hammer. Why? No. Because they think, you know, everybody has it. It's just like the Americans. And that's, that's where you kind of fall down. Right. That's where, you know, the average, you know, you're, you're going to have to do your research. You're going to have to understand the habits and the way Chinese people kind of live their lives. I think and when Ikea, you introduce your product. Yeah, Ikea was a good example because they instilled uh, the uh, not just the delivery, but also the construction and setup of, of uh, and then things really took off for them. Yeah, exactly, exactly. And I think that's 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 part of it. I mean, you just and that, and that that's the story. And I think that's the story of a lot of brands, uh, which is that uh, they have to adjust themselves to you know what Chinese people want, you know, as opposed to this is this is our business model, right? This is our business model, and we can't change our business model. And, and you know, IKEA is a perfect example of saying, look. 
we have to adjust our business model if we want to succeed in China. And then they did, and, and that was that helped helped them. So it's not. So I think the question is, <clears throat> what is at the essence of your brand, right? Is it the fact that you know? people have to kind of build the furniture themselves. Is that the essence of, you, of who you are? If you believe that is, then you're not going to succeed in China. So when you're working with brands that are coming to China, and you inspired me to ask this, how important is it and how much do you have to emphasize to brands coming to China that they kind of need to throw out their current KYC, their current know your customer profile? How important mm-hmm. is it for them to allocate the resources to completely redo their KYC? When you come into China, my question, first of will always be, have you done research on your consumer here in China? Um, oftentimes, if it's a large company, they will have done a global study where they are comparing and contrasting different markets uh, and looking at consumers across different markets. Uh, I think that is a good start, but I think you always need to go deeper. And I think most brands are, are you know, uh, do that where they will kind of actually speak to their consumer. I have been in situations where, you know, um, clients or brands will not have done any uh, significant research on the local customer thinking that their product is, you know, uh, really great. And, you know, if they were able to distribute it, it'll, it'll just, uh, you know, sell like hotcakes. And, and that's, maybe that's the case sometimes, you know, I think Tesla probably has that uh, luxury, but I think, um, you know, a lot of brands will not have that luxury. Uh, so they really need to be able to kind of really empathize and find ways to sort of understand who their customer is. And for me, um, personally, I have, it's kind of a bear bug for me, which is uh, I am really bothered when uh, foreign uh, brands come into the market or foreign clients come into the market um, not knowing, respecting, or caring about the consumer here. Mm. Um, and and I, I would say it's probably less the case today than it was mm-hmm, uh, mm-hmm. where there was almost there was almost a almost a condescension right where there was like you know you know these customers are so low that you know I don't I don't really connect with them so I don't really understand them and and when you when you're in a situation where you don't respect where you don't care to know your consumer um, where you do care not to understand their motivations, I think you're going to lose. I think you're going to fail in the marketplace, right? Because I think, I think consumers will probably feel that at some level, right? Um, and then it's not about trying to understand their, you know, their whole psychological composition, right? I mean, it's not about that necessarily, but I think you need to get to a level of empathy, right? Where you feel you understand their needs, you understand their motivations, and therefore you're able to kind of massage or, you know, reposition or kind of fine tune your position. So it fits nicely with the, 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 uh, the consumer, right? Uh, It's not about throwing out things necessarily, but it is about kind of making adjustments. And I would say also that I think a lot of brands, 
particularly global brands, what they try to do is try to find the lowest common denominator where their American consumer, uh, their Canadian consumer, their French consumer, and their Chinese consumer will all share one certain thing in common. And therefore, let's just try to work with that. So I would say don't do that. I think you should try to try to you should try to be um, to really start from China as opposed to trying to fit it into a global model that you're you're or you're trying to fit neatly into a, a PowerPoint presentation. What is one thing you found brands underestimated when they came to enter China, and one thing, maybe even more interestingly, that they overestimated when they were looking to come to China? There are different clients. There are clients who are incredibly arrogant and there are clients who are incredibly humble. Mm-hmm. And I think it's, I think it's about finding a middle ground. Um, uh, and I, I know that's not your question, but you know, I think it's about finding a middle ground of kind of tr- trying to observe and view China. Right. Cause I think mm-hmm. if you come in too humble, you're going to get stepped over. Yeah. I think if you're going to come in too arrogant, you're going to be blind. But if you're kind of in the in the middle, you can hold on to who you are, but also keep your eyes wide open, right? And I think that's an incredibly important position to have when you're in China, right? Because it, it, it does bother me when I see both two parts, right? When you're when you come into China being very weak and kind of humble and and being very politically correct and and kind of like I respect you, I respect you. It gets to the it, it you become so respectful that you lose your backbone, right? Mm-hmm. Um I mean it's it's sort of like, you know, what's going on in the US where you're just everyone's so damn PC that, uh, you know, no one's telling the truth anymore, right? Everyone's just kind of, you know, shutting up. But yeah. um, I, I think you need to come in confident, but you cannot come in arrogant. I think that's that's definitely, a, you know, a, a sign of death is soon to come. But uh, get, getting back to your, your question about what are, what are clients overestimating or underestimating, I think they under, often underestimate the... the um, the sophistication of comp- competitors, local competitors. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think that's that's a major issue that I think uh, clients do not understand. But I, I think that's changing. I think they're starting to realize that uh, there are local brands that are just doing a really good job. Uh, and I think what that means is that we need to study local brands as well, right? This isn't about local brands studying the, the foreign brands anymore. It's about foreign brands having to kind of study uh, the the behaviors and the kind of the strategies and the tactics of local brands as well as the foreign brands. I think that's really important. I think that, so my point is that I think um, they do underestimate local brands, um, they may be smaller in certain instances, and you know, they they may not even have a, a, a product as good as their product. Right, the quality mm-hmm. might not be that mm-hmm. good, but um, you know what? They're selling a hell of a lot more product. You know why? Because they understand the consumer, right? Like there's, um, you know, I think Siemens was, uh, you know, there's a few brands in the kind of the home, like I guess the the ovens, mm-hmm. and one of the things is. that the, Chi- the one of the Chinese brands is that they put some pretty serious fires on their ovens, right? Because when Chinese people cook, I mean, they put that fire up, right? Because they want to, you know, Mm -hmm. when they stir fry, they stir and they fry, 
right? <laughs> so, and the exhaust, I mean, they need that to be super powerful, right? And, um, you know, it's the local brands like uh, Robam and uh, Laban and uh, other brands like that who have been able to sort of understand how Chinese people cook. Right. And I, I think foreign brands are coming slowly towards that. But again, Westerners cook differently than Chinese, and you need to kind of adjust. Um, so, you know, you can't just always, you know, assume that you bring in your high-quality product that's going to sell. So uh, I think uh, overestimate um, – well, I think, I think in, most, in most instances, I think it's about, you know, not, not appreciating how complex China is and how sophisticated the, the social media is uh, and how challenging social media is uh, and, and how you know sophisticated e-commerce is and how important e-commerce is. Um, you Sounds know, like a general underestimation. Most, most of it is underestimating. Under, I mean, you, I mean, <laughs> well, I mean, the fact of the matter is you're not, I mean, if, and here's, a, here's another thought, which is, you know, if you're gonna compete in China, you got to be in China, right? Mm. You cannot, you know, you know, direct the boat from, you know, New York headquarters. You really can't. You need to be in the market. Like, for instance, for me, um, I, I used to, you know, live in Hong Kong for three years, and but I would work in, in China. But to be honest, even if I'm in Hong Kong, I do not understand the market unless I'm in China. Because when you're in China, you, you're surrounded by Chinese people and you're living with them and you're understanding what their pains are their you know what their what their needs are what the new products are coming out and what news of the day was just you know getting a lot of uh, you know hype and so if you're going to you know try to win in china you got to be in china right if you're going to fight in the battle you got to be on the battlefield what do you think is the one thing that western brands or foreign brands could learn from the chinese brands the Chinese are not perfectionists, right? At least not now, right? And, mm -hmm. you know, um, they're, and if you're trying to get everything right, if you're trying to get all your communications right, if you're trying to get your product absolutely right, you know, perfect in every, in every regard, you know, cross every T and dot every I, you're not going to get there. You can't. You gotta you you gotta be more agile, which is interesting because this ideal of kind of like you know fail fast. I mean, Silicon Valley is kind of throwing that idea out. Chinese are all about that. It's about fail fast, move fast. You know, it doesn't need to be perfect. It, in fact, it doesn't need to actually always be very incredibly good. It just needs to be good enough, mm -hmm. right? And that's actually you know. It's an interesting one because good enough, it, it has two sides to it. It can be seen as that's good or it can be seen as that's, that's evil, right? Good enough just means, you know, we haven't put so much money, so much investment into it, uh, but you know what? That's okay. It'll sell, right? And most consumers will say, you know, that's good enough is good enough, right? And uh, I think sometimes when foreign brands come in they, and they do their, you know, uh, R&D, and I think they should be thinking about R&D, uh, they need to think about, is, it, is this good enough? Or if do, they, do they want to you know, push it a little bit further? And the question is, if you push it a little bit further, is that going to make that much difference? And usually the answer to that question is, 
No, it's not going to make that much of a difference. Mm -hmm. And I think also one of the things that Chinese brands tend to do is they try to, they, um, in the absence of, you know, true invention or true innovation, they'll put a lot of things around it, like add-ons or, you know, features or added services. And, and I think those kind of add-ons and those value adds are really important. And you can think about it on those on that level as well. And I think, you know, Chinese brands do a very good job of that. And I think foreign brands can do that as well. And and so there's other areas, not just the product itself, that can be sources of uh, competitive advantage. What is your favorite piece of advice to give to foreign brands looking to come to China? My my advice would be to really spend the time to find the right people mm. to build your business, to create your business in China. Mm. You know, don't just stop at the first person who speaks really good English, mm. the person who, you know, you just feel a, a strong connection with immediately, right? Try to find the person who has done the work before, who has experience in that area who's executed it before find the person who has connections the person who is connected to the ground right i think that's so important people who you know roll their sleeves up people who are able to talk to the distributors who are able to talk to and have talked to you know the people on the ground right don't just get someone who's highly educated who speaks amazing english Talk to the people who've done the work, who've gone into the battlefield, who've fought the fights. That is excellent advice from an excellent person who has some of the longest tenure and experience in China. It's been an absolute pleasure having you on the show, Milo. Thanks, Todd. Appreciate it. Growing a company is hard. Doing it in a foreign market? Exponentially so. The best piece of advice I can give you is not to do it alone. When you start looking across the pond for further expansion possibilities, and I sincerely hope that you do, make sure you choose the right partners to do it with. My good friends at WPIC Marketing and Technologies have almost 20 years of experience helping brands just like yours enter China. I hope you enjoyed this episode of The Negotiation, and if you're interested in being a guest or want to connect with me or any of our team, please reach out to us at podcast at wpic.co. And be sure to rate, comment, and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Zai Jing.